You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll hear from two of our Fierce journalists as they give us a preview of the 2023 Medicare Advantage open enrollment. But first up, let's talk about virtual diagnostics. Some things have boomed since the start of the pandemic. Medical lab testing, but at home. That's called consumer-initiated lab testing, and it has exploded in the last few years. At the beginning of the pandemic, there were catastrophic delays in testing. Regulatory hurdles kept labs from using their own COVID tests, which confused public health guidance. But the virus wasn't going away anytime soon, and neither was the need for more tests. So several companies stepped in to offer testing kits directly to consumers. Now, by 2025, this market could be worth more than $2 billion. Home tests are becoming more popular, so companies have to think outside the box to stay competitive. So, Fierce's Anastasia Gladkovskia sat down with Liz Kuo to talk about where home testing started out and where it's headed. Liz is the chief medical officer at Everly Health, which offers a virtual diagnostics-driven care platform. Here's Anastasia and Liz. Well, hi, Liz. Again, thanks for taking the time to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Very happy to be here. So um, this is a very exciting space. It's becoming increasingly crowded, of course, the home testing market. It's something that we've been watching pretty closely since uh, the start of the pandemic, really. Um, There have obviously been a lot of hurdles to overcome to get to where we are right now. But I'm curious, what did you think of the early pandemic days of home diagnostics and has it turned out the way that you expected? Oh, yes. I think the early days were, uh, there was a lot of interest, but there were sort of first movers and early adopters that were more interested in hacking their health. Uh, the pandemic has really changed that. Uh, I think it's accelerated at-home healthcare to the point where we are able to now manage our own data and feel like we can both do health and wellness tests, but also chronic care management, disease management. And even after doctor offices and clinics have largely resumed routine services, we're seeing a lot of consumers making home testing part of their everyday lives in telehealth. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And are you saying that uh, the ability to access data virtually through some sort of platform is really like the differentiating factor here that's making it more appealing for consumers? Yes, absolutely. I do think that it, we're leaps and bounds farther than what we ever used to be with helping uh, not only patients in their own homes build their own healthcare journeys with different conditions that they want to manage and helping also not only people get better care, but access care at the time they need it, when they want it, in the form that they need it in. So everything from telehealth uh, consults to testing to treating in the home and even having drugs delivered to you when you need them. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, the pandemic, you know, at the beginning, as you said, it was really more about getting uh, remote test kits into the hands of consumers. And throughout the pandemic, companies have had time to hone um, these platforms and and offer additional features. Do you see this as 
having been some sort of incubation period. And now we're entering a different era with um, additional features and, and accessibility digitally. Absolutely. I think the first stop is helping people that don't necessarily get care uh, in remote places or don't aren't as mobile and need to be able to do things in their own home. So it's really bridged that gap of accessibility. The second is also affordability. So a lot of the proliferation of companies and tests have allowed the prices to be driven down to some extent because it's been much more popular to allow for people to be able to pay out of pocket if they don't have insurance and if they do have insurance getting covered by insurance, Um, but also the ability for conditions of all sorts to be managed in their own home. I definitely believe in this idea of um, ensuring access and affordability, but convenient private testing allows us all to be healthier. And even for example, screenings during the pandemic, uh, it was, there was a definitely significant drop in home sexually transmitted illness testing Uh, or just across the board, not just in the home. And home testing has proliferated to the point where now people can get access to it and be able to test um, in their own homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think there's there's, um, a lot of potential here for consumers to feel empowered to take care of themselves and to understand their their own health. Um, And uh, this is obviously critical to preventative care and, and primary care. I'm glad you brought up accessibility and affordability, because that's something that I was going to ask about, actually, for the reasons you mentioned, this is a very appealing space because it is accessible and affordable more so than, for example, going to a clinic um, or or seeking some more invasive tests, uh, which, which may be needed down the line, but preliminarily. Um, but studies have shown that not all of these tests are as accurate as they claim to be, whether that's for COVID or for other conditions. And um, consumers have been confused about Uh, knowing what to test and when. Um, And on top of that, of course, we know that test results don't really diagnose a condition. So I'm wondering how you grapple with that in in making clear to consumers that there are limitations to products like home testing. It's a great question. Uh, Generally, what we do, at least uh, especially for Everly Health, we do lab-developed tests, which is LDTs. They are tests that are developed, validated, and processed in a single lab And there are hundreds of thousands of LDTs available, including at-home lab collection tests that are run at hospitals and also in universities. While there's no substitute for regularly seeing your healthcare provider in person, when you have at-home tests, you can manage all the tests in the comforts of your own home, look at the data yourself, save it, and also retest if you feel like things may not be as clear. We also are spending a lot of time um, asking consumers information about their symptoms. And at some point, what you could do is actually become very predictive and prescriptive and say, you know, you told me about some of these areas where you want to work on, let's say, fertility, but you're telling me you have some weight gain and some hair loss and some lethargy. There may be some time where you should be looking at potentially something called thyroid. And we have thyroid tests that we can offer. And so we're starting to look into this and comb through the data and really help people get more predictive and also prescriptive. That's interesting. That's like, yeah, that's that's really preventive care. I haven't even thought about algorithms being used in that way. We've also been coaching different um, of uh, multiple consumers and folks that, let's say, they're really interested in just having tests in their own home. If they need to, at some point, um, they don't have to order it and send it home and send it back. They can just keep it in their drug cabinet and be able to access mm-hmm. it when they need it. So, where do you see home testing headed? It sounds like 
you think of it as a very digital first, um, data driven kind of space. Can you talk about maybe your hopes for for the market or any missed opportunities? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I believe all this, uh, the way that we're thinking through data is very promising, has many applications in the short term and, and predicting onset of disease, facilitating decisions in all sorts of post-acute care um, settings and helping people, let's say, leave the hospital even earlier so that they can continue to do home testing. Um, I definitely think there are some major cha- challenges. Um, healthcare costs top the list of expenses that people report difficulty affording. Um, let's say one in five healthcare workers have left their jobs. Uh, 33% of Americans have delayed even receiving care during the pandemic. So I think that scaling this business and the comforts of doing things in your own home is essential to address these issues and close gaps in care. Um, I think one thing that we are learning through too is how do we make sure not only is telehealth accessible, but this idea of testing to treating to closing the um, real needs of the consumer and how do we secure uh, all this different type of innovation so that it can be reimbursable or it can be covered by insurance now that we're looking at um, reimbursement down the line, whether you can screen for diabetes or cholesterol or other things, we're trying to provide a physician-friendly format where patients can do it in their own homes if they don't have a doctor. But if they do, they can still follow up with their primary care doctor if they need to. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about uh, reimbursement. So just to be clear, are none of your tests currently reimbursable with insurance? Uh, that's a really good question. We are reimbursed by payers because we work with many payers. Um, I'll take a step back and just discuss the direction that the industry needs to take, both as a chief medical officer, but also practicing physician. Um, we are covered multiple with multiple tests because many payers have something called gaps where they want to do kidney screens or colon, um, colon cancer screens um, and diabetes screens. Uh, but what our goal is, is to cover more tests like that because not everything is covered right now. And so some things are perceived as more a wellness check as opposed to a medical necessity. Um, So coming also from a um, a prior, uh, I would say a prior hat that I wore, which was on the um, payer side, insurance side, I really believe that we can look at medical costs and reduce them over time if you can screen early, catch the disease early, treat it early. And that's what a lot of the frameworks of um, insurance companies are looking at. They don't want to cover everything, but they want to cover things that make sense um, and that can help patients um, perhaps reduce overall costs or hospital admissions or ER visits in the long run. Do you think that payers are more likely to cover tests that are, say, cleared by the FDA? Have you encountered that in your own work? Yes, that's a great question. So uh, we definitely think that, you know, of course, FDA is an important piece of, um, let's say, medical devices or other things that need. Uh, prior off, prior approval, uh, but especially for the lab developed tests, the earlier things that we talked about, um, they are validated and processed in a single lab with um, very strong third party uh, folks that help us review everything. I would say, in um, from reimbursement standpoint, that's not necessarily a criteria for FDA to approve it because home LDTs are just so common now, and so reimbursement. A lot of these payers are now starting to reimburse regardless of where the FDA stands. Hmm. That's interesting. Good to know. And what about, um, for example, CMS, you know, ordered payers earlier this year to cover the cost of COVID tests, you know, a certain amount per per, per member per month. Um, what have those conversations been like? I mean, do you think that's sort of a 
a tall mountain to climb, so to speak, with payers in, in talking about what they absolutely must cover or if there's an order, say, from the White House? That's a really good question. I think a lot of the pandemic has caused uh, the you know, home testing to be very much more common. Although you, you, there are also telehealth surveys that are saying the growing majority of consumers say they now prefer telehealth over in-person visits. And even insurance companies are saying they need to maintain a physician network that allows home testing and home um, telehealth to be available because they also want to make sure that um, their network covers all the populations that they want to be part of their membership. So I do think that um, there is a massive shift. Um, even reimbursement for uh, providers, brick and mortar are now being on reimbursed on par with doing a telehealth visit. So we're seeing more and more providers not only being comfortable, but also consumers being comfortable, um, including prescription refills with telehealth, reviews, and medication options, discussing medical results. Um, and there's definitely a lot of surveys out there. For example, um, we've seen um, not only has a trend empowered patients to change their healthcare outcomes for the better, but we also see um, in, within Medicare, you were just mentioning, um, and CMS, there's a lot of gap closure rates that are using home testing to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that actually is a great segue uh, for us to talk about that STD epidemic briefly. I know we touched on this at the top of the conversation. Um, Everly, of course, recently put out STD prevalence data looking at uh, the number of tests uh, that have been done in the U.S. in the past year. Um, and it, the data showed that 20% of some 60,000 plus mm. tests were from rural areas. Where do you see home tests fitting in in this picture versus, say, going to a brick and mortar clinic, um, you know, going forward or in addressing this particular pandemic? Really good point. So STDs are some of the highest rates in the U.S. that they've ever been. And at-risk populations have um, never had less access to testing. We are we saw about 80% of sexually sexual health screening clinics have to reduce hours during the shutdown and um, in the last 24 months. So I definitely think that STD test um, making available uh, across the homes and the comforts of um, people's private homes is, is really important. The data that we saw um, was that chlamydia was one of the most prevalent STDs at a 5.4% rate. And some areas with the highest overall prevalence came from more rural areas, signaling at-home test benefit um, in providing access in those areas. So, uh, you know, what's interesting is it sounds simple, but it starts with prevention through education, things like sexual education programs, testing and treatment services, and preventive technologies. But in addition, we've seen very progressive states like California now mandating payers to reimburse for home STD testing. And it's ensuring access and affordability for convenient private testing in the home. So we're starting to follow these trends. And um, I'm very excited about it because I do think with the pandemic, it's really pushed that. I had been reading about some studies that show that, um, you know, excessive screenings for certain conditions or diseases like breast cancer, thyroid cancer, I think was one of them, um, actually can spike people's anxiety and lead to potentially more invasive tests that are not really worth the cost or the effort. Um, just wondering if you see uh, any risk of, of like potential risk of that in the home testing space where consumers become sort of obsessed with 
uh, testing, even if they're, say, asymptomatic because it's accessible, it's affordable for some, um, what would you respond to that? I think in, in general, I do think people tend to want to learn more about their own biometrics. Uh, a lot of people want to wear wearables, just like they want to do testing. Um, I don't think we try to encourage fear, but it's more so understanding and curiosity from the ability to you know, empower people to feel like health can be in their own hands. My goal, especially in testing, is to not um, encourage fear, but to feel like people can be empowered to do more with um, information that they could have at their disposal. If you do testing that's accurate and can really show you um, some answers, I think that's really encouraging. I appreciate that emphasis on accurate there. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for your perspective and for your time today. Uh, Last question for you would be just, you know, what keeps you going? Uh, What keeps you interested in this work? Oh, so much. Um, I can, I'll just say that I get excited about empowering others because I myself, um, even as a physician, though, I've gone through my own ups and downs in my healthcare journey. Uh, I was actually nine months pregnant in 2014 when I lost a baby. And um, it was difficult because I probably saw some of the signs of like I had a little bit of headache and maybe some elevated blood pressure, but it wasn't that significant. Um, And if I would have just listened to my own body and or had other ways to track or test, um, I think I probably could have had a better outcome. And the reality is, uh, I think a lot of people out there that don't necessarily have direct access to care um, could benefit from hearing and listening to their own symptoms and having a way to track and trace and follow. So um, I get really excited about trying to help others. And so making testing easier and screening better is something that I get really encouraged about. Well, I'm really sorry about your loss, but I I can see how you are driven to help others. And um, I think like for many people in the healthcare industry, they are sort of compelled by a personal experience. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I now have three wonderful kids, so I'm very thankful for that. And I just encourage everyone in the industry. I'm excited to see where this industry can go. Wonderful. Well, Liz Quo, thank you so much for being here on Podnosis. Thank you for having me. That was Anastasia Gladkovskia and Liz Quo. And next, we're going to do things a little differently. Instead of inviting another guest onto the show, we're turning to our own in-house experts. Our fierce journalists have always kept a pulse on the current trends and news in healthcare. So when I want to know more about, say, Medicare Advantage, for example, I just text my colleagues. Open enrollment has started for next year's Medicare Advantage program, And as more and more insurers are starting to enter the market, the private plan option is expected to surpass traditional Medicare in total enrollment. But the market is starting to see some headwinds. Congress has ramped up scrutiny over high spending in the program. In addition, star ratings that help consumers choose between plans have declined across the board. Next is fierce healthcare reporters Paige Minimeyer and Robert King discussing the key issues and trends with Medicare Advantage. Robert, recently you put together a a deep dive into some of the key trends to watch um, as Medicare Advantage enrollment really gets underway this week. Um, To start us off, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what you see the market looking like as, you know, enrollment opens. It began Friday, Saturday. Is it Saturday? Am I correct? It is Saturday. Yes. 
open enrollment for all of Medicare had started on Saturday, October 15th, and runs until uh, the beginning of December. So uh, right now, one of the biggest things that I was looking at in the report is that it is it appears likely that Medicare Advantage, uh, the private plan option in Medicare, is going to make up uh, more than half of total Medicare enrollment uh, in 2023. This has been projected for a while that uh, Medicare Advantage was going to kind of surpass uh, traditional Medicare, uh, but now we're actually kind of at that tipping point, which is one of the key themes in the special report that I released uh, last week. So I, I'm thinking that it's going to be a extremely competitive uh, market uh, marketplace and going to be a very uh, competitive open enrollment uh, where plans, even the big ones and the smaller regional plans are going to try and find ways to stand out. And they're going to be looking to stand out in terms of the customer experience and the supplemental benefits that they offer. And these supplemental benefits can range from uh, you know, benefits that are not offered under traditional Medicare, like dental, vision, and hearing, to kind of some more uncommon benefits uh, that you wouldn't necessarily see with a health plan, like meals, transportation. So uh, it's going to be some fierce competition, I think, this open <laughs> enrollment period. I, did, I didn't mean to put in fierce as a pun, I think. <laughs> it's, it's, I'll so. always be plugging, nothing wrong with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the trends that you noted in the report is that, you know, this year there's high chance and we we saw some of that bear out already that the number of plans with four stars or higher in the in the star ratings will be going down what do you see is kind of behind that that trend yeah so the star ratings each each plan is evaluated uh gets a star from uh one to five with five being the highest and, and best and for 2022 we saw a large amount of uh plans that had four or more stars and that was that created kind of a pretty big windfall for medicare advantage insurers as the uh, star ratings help kind of kind of determine what the plan's quality bonus is going to be so uh cms center for medicare and medicaid services uh just released uh it's what the star ratings are going to look like for the uh, 2023 plan year, and it, it doesn't look good. Uh, so it, it noted that 51% of Medicare Advantage plans that offer drug uh, coverage are going to be uh, have four or more stars. And that is a, a kind of a steep drop compared to the 68% um, of plans that had four or more stars uh, for 2022. And uh, one of the parts of the report I talked to, uh, some experts that I talked to said that a big reason for this is CMS is doing away with the disaster provision that kind of helps plans, uh, uh, kind of take help plans weather the, you know, revenue roller coaster that they were on due to the COVID nineteen pandemic. So it, it essentially the disaster provision enabled plans to take kind of the better of a current or a historical performance on quality measures for their 2022 ratings. So that means that 
essentially a plan could use the best scores that they have generated in previous years and they didn't have to use kind of uh you know the you know didn't have to factor in any kind of performance deterioration in in some of their measures so this kind of really helped to uh spike ratings for the 2022 plan year and now we're seeing kind of a rebound effect as that provision is going to go away essentially another big reason is that there's going to be a larger weight put on kind of the uh consumer assessment of health providers and systems survey which kind of evaluates the patient experience in a healthcare setting uh cms is quadrupling the weight of those survey results when they calculated the 2023 star ratings so those two factors are two of the biggest reasons that we're seeing this dip uh, in star ratings going into the 2023 plan year. And with a significant decline in in the star ratings, I mean, how does that impact finances for the health plans? Well, it's it's not going to be good, uh, I think, um, you know, because again, they, uh, you know, more star, higher star ratings means that you get uh, more quality bonuses. Uh, so there was an analysis, I believe, from McKinsey uh, that said that plans could take potentially an $800 million hit to their revenue overall uh, in 2023. So it's, it's not good, uh, you know, but uh, again, we're, we're not seeing, you know, more and more plans are, you know, growing in the marketplace. Uh, so I don't think that plans are really deterred by this. They are, I think, expecting that things are going to kind of come back to earth or come back down to earth, I think, in the ratings, you know, as we head into open enrollment. So, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's going to ding them some. Um, you know, and as you touched on earlier, Medicare Advantage has been very popular among beneficiaries with um, surveys charting significantly high satisfaction. Obviously, enrollment is growing every year as well. Um, but critics of the program note that they're needs to be some changes to how risk adjustment works within MA. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of the issues there? Sure. So uh, plans are paid essentially, uh, plans can get adjustments to their payments from Medicare based on the patient health. And what uh, some several reports and have, have shown uh, from uh, the Office of the Inspector General for Health and Human Services, uh, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which uh, kind of looks at Medicare Medicare issues, have kind of hit hit the red alert button essentially over the past couple of years. That you know these that risk adjustment practices have been used to kind of helps drive overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans. Uh, a big Source of this uh, is uh, coding differences where uh, there's changes in the uh, patient's code uh, that can add, where plans can add unnecessary diagnoses to the codes that can help inflate the risk scores of a patient. And a higher risk score will, uh, in effect, lead to a higher payment to the plan. Uh, MedPAC uh, recently, I think, did an analysis that said that Coding differences amounted to nearly $9 billion in overpayments to plans in 2019. And Kaiser, the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, also showed in a 2021 analysis that spending on Medicare Advantage plans outpaced traditional Medicare by $7 billion in 2019. 
And so that's kind of important to show that, you know, that's an important note because one of the biggest benefits, uh, as, as the proponents of Medicare Advantage will say, is that Medicare Advantage through kind of uh, more coordinated care through, uh, you know, more narrower networks are able to kind of drive down costs for Medicare. But as we're seeing, some of these risk adjustment practices and these other issues are actually uh, kind of increasing costs uh, for Medicare. And now it's it one of the it's interesting because one of the ex, some of the experts that I talked to said that plans are kind of coming around to this issue, uh, and that they, but that it could be a couple years before we see the effects of how plans change their risk adjustment practices. Uh, again, the the data that I just showed you was from 2019. So, you know, we, it, it could be that, uh, you know, we might see, you know, some changes in the next couple years, but we might not, you know, it could be that, that plans are, uh, making some changes to their risk adjustment practices, but we won't see that maybe for another year or two, uh, because of how some of these analyses, uh, play out. Also, it's important to note, we don't know exactly how, uh, CMS is going to uh, approach this issue. Uh, CMS had put out a request for information on how to kind of improve the Medicare Advantage program earlier this year. We haven't seen any changes to how CMS will handle risk adjustments for the 2023 plan year. So any changes that we see from the agency will likely uh, kind of take effect in 2024. But you know, again, Medicare Advantage is very popular. So I don't think that they're going to want to make a lot of wholesale or seismic changes for the 2024 plan year. Uh, But we could see, you know, the start of some initiatives essentially on this issue. And given that CMS only has so much power to overhaul Medicare Advantage, I mean, what role do you see Congress maybe playing as we look at potential changes to risk adjustment? Yeah, that's that's a, a great question, and the answer I think is not much of one. <laughs> um, uh, Medicare Advantage uh, has a lot of it is very popular among uh, you know lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, which is something that you don't see a lot in Congress nowadays. You know, there's very few issues that get as widespread support and as fervent support. Uh, as Medicare Advantage, uh, a recent letter from I think eighty percent of the entire House of Representatives, like that's the total House membership, uh, you know, uh, kind of touted their support for the program. And so, I don't think that we're going to see Congress uh, drive a lot of widespread changes that could, you know, that could potentially cut, uh, you know payments overall to Medicare Advantage plans. Medicare Advantage is concentrated right now among several large insurers with, you know, United Healthcare and Humana alone taking up a huge chunk of of enrollment. How do you see smaller plans working to to chip away at that market share? Yeah, so uh I think it was an analysis from Kaiser Family Foundation and we'll give a little shout out to Kaiser I think to uh you know for these they've done a lot of work uh on Medicare Advantage. They said that uh, an analysis that they put out, uh, I think for this year, found uh, that United Health and Humana make up at least seventy 
uh, kind of have at least 75% of all uh, Medicare Advantage enrollees. Um, and that's within 29% of all U.S. counties. So, And that's not even including other large players such as Centene and uh, Blue uh, kind of Blue Cross Blue Shield plans as well. So there is, you know, the, the larger players kind of have a pretty high market share, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there isn't room for smaller, more regional plans to kind of carve out a niche. And some of the smaller plans that I've talked to uh, say that they're looking for ways to, looking for ways to kind of stand out essentially in this uh, kind of, you know, highly concentrated marketplace. And especially in this, this, you know, try to have their plans compete with the big boys, essentially. And one of the ways that I think some of them talked to some of the plans that I talked to said that they're trying to stand out is through network adequacy. A big difference between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare is that Medicare Advantage, like your commercial health plan, has a specific doctor doctor uh, or provider network that the beneficiary has to use. And plans can help to control costs by, you know, putting beneficiaries towards certain networks and everything that they've been able to negotiate with providers for lower rates. Uh, whereas for traditional Medicare, uh, a beneficiary can go kind of wherever they would like. And and Paige, I know that you did, I, I believe, a story uh, recently that was looking at the uh, that was kind of looking at the larger uh, players in the Medicare Advantage space. What what mm-hmm. do uh, some of the larger plans uh, have in store for this open enrollment period? Pretty much across the board, I'd say they're they're all moving full speed ahead with expanding. And you know, you touched on this as well. They're leaning on a variety of kind of unique and supplemental benefit options to to stand out even between one another, <laughs> um, including, you know, flex cards that can be used for over-the-counter goods or, or food and things like that, $0 premium plans, low-cost generic drug options, and that's all just to get an edge on kind of the competitors. Um, digital health and virtual care platforms are also growing an area of interest, especially as we come out of the pandemic, perhaps <laughs> to no surprise to anyone. But I think there's two of the big nationals to kind of watch this open enrollment window that we should be talking about. Um, you mentioned Centene, who became a really large player in in the Medicare Advantage market after they acquired WellCare. Um, and they're one of the most negatively impacted by the changes to the star ratings that we were discussing earlier, um, they're kind of at a point where they may not be able to expand in certain geographies. So we'll have to see kind of in the future how that <laughs> impacts maybe growth plans that they had or kind of their trajectory for expansion. The other I would say to keep an eye on is Humana. Um, they had a huge miss last year on their enrollment targets. They initially told investors that they were expecting between 325,000 and 375,000 new members in the 2022 open enrollment period. And then later had to uh, significantly cut that uh, to one between 150,000 and 200,000 members. So that's a huge uh, loss for them. So the past year has been a lot of, (laughs) I think, soul searching and looking inward on what maybe what they can do to continue enhancing their core MA product and invest more in it. They've done a lot of work to 
really bolster that that segment of the business. Yeah, I, I got uh, when you said soul searching, uh, an image of health executives, insurer executives <laughs> wandering in the forest, you know, exactly uh, trying to become they, one I with nature and learn uh, how better to coordinate care, I suppose. <laughs> uh, as... Yeah, Bruce Broussard was just, yeah, just went to the woods. <laughs> yeah, he, he went to his cabin in the woods and then, you know, found out, ah, it's digital health. That's what we're going to do. That's what we need, exactly. <laughs> so. Well, it certainly looks like this is going to be another big year for Medicare Advantage. So I I appreciate Robert for for joining me and taking taking some time to talk about it. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week is a special episode about our Fierce Healthpayer Summit, which happened on October 12th. So if you missed the summit, tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.